Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy powered by Vitreo. This is episode 42 and it was recorded on Wednesday, June 12th, 2020. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. This is our ninth episode of 2020. We are joined by Juniper Glass, founder and principal at Lumiere Consulting, by Tanya Rumble, manager of development, major and plan giving at McMaster University, and by Derek Delouche, senior development officer at Carleton University. Our topic, donor engagement of women in Canada, insights on fundraising programs and practices. Today's special podcast stems from a seminal study by that very same name done by Juniper Glass this past February. Juniper's work was funded by the AFP Foundation for Philanthropy Canada and supported by PhiLab, the Canadian Philanthropy Partnership Research Network. In 10 years, women in Canada, who today control just over one-third of Canada's personal wealth assets, will control almost half. And yet, our fund development strategies to work with women are underdeveloped and underused. Join us as we talk about what needs to change and how having women driving philanthropy is better for all of us. It's time for Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome to episode 42 of Brain Trust Philanthropy powered by Vitreo. This is our ninth episode of 2020. Our topic, donor engagement of women in Canada, insights on fundraising programs and practices. We've invited four terrific professionals, all of whom work with or advise clients in Canada's nonprofit space. I'm excited to be here. They're excited to be here. Let's get started. First, joining us from Montreal, we have Juniper Glass. Juniper is a leading researcher and practitioner in social change philanthropy in Canada. Her firm, Lumiere Consulting, supports foundations, national nonprofits, and Indigenous organizations with strategy, evaluation, governance, and research to advance their work towards social and climate justice. As you will hear more about later in this episode, Juniper's work was the catalyst for today's podcast. Juniper is not a stranger to be on webinars, but this might be one of her first podcasts she's been on. Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, Juniper. We're so pleased to have you join us. Thank you so much, Vincent, and thanks to Vitreo for hosting. You're most welcome. I have known of Juniper for some time, but we've not met in person. Juniper, you're such a strong voice uh, on and for philanthropy in Canada. Thank you for that. In doing some prep for today's podcast, I read a few of your guest book reviews on the Philanthropist blog, a terrific blog, by the way. Um, we're going to hear much more from you later on the program about today's topic. But before we do that, I'm wondering if you could share with us what you're reading right now, or maybe if you're up for it, what was the best book you read in the last 12 months? Oh, my goodness. So some people, um, you know, with the, the COVID pandemic and so on, had a real shift in their schedule and, and started reading a lot of books. It was not the case for me. Uh, I got more busy. Um, but I rediscovered a bunch of books uh, on my bookshelf. And so I started rereading some things. And honestly, my go-to has been um, a comic book. Perfect. <laughs> so <laughs> I have been reading, often with my son on the porch, while he reads his own comic books, um, Alison Bechdel's uh, Dykes to Watch Out For, which is this awesome comic strip that ran for like 25 years or something. And through the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. And it's so much fun, um, but also deals with like, like incredible political issues going on in the States at that time. And then like the intimate lives of a whole bunch of like queer folks and their friends and children and parents and neighbors and coworkers. And I just love it. The character is amazing. The drawing has so much detail and it gives me a, a brain refresh from my, from my work day in which I read a lot of uh, kind of heavier stuff as a researcher. Right. Well, that's great. What's it called again? It's, the compilation is called, uh, well, the, the comic strip was called The Dykes to Watch Out For, and the, uh, the compilation is The Essential, and it's by Alison Bechdel. 
That's great. We'll put that in the show notes. That's awesome. And what I love about that answer is, is so people are, you know, they'll be, they'll be looking at the, the promo for this and they'll know uh, about you as a researcher and they might thinking, you know, academic, you know, she's probably going to, you know, name some book I've never heard of and how awesome it is and how dry it is to read. And instead you gave us a graphic novel. It's fantastic. So thank you for that, Juniper. Uh, next, joining us from Toronto, we have Tanya Rumble. Tanya is manager development major in plan giving at McMaster University. And she's also currently on maternity leave and has graciously carved out some time away from her four-month-old and selling her house to spend some time with us. Tanya is no stranger to podcasts and has been on more than a few. We're happy you're joining us. So welcome to the podcast, Tanya. Oh, thank you very much, Vincent, for having me. I'm really excited to be part of today's discussion. It's going to be a good one. Thanks very much. Like Juniper, I've known of Tanya, but we've never met in person. As a board member with AFP Canada Foundation, we fund the AFP Fellowship in Inclusion and Philanthropy. And Tanya was a fellow in 2016 and 2017, and now she sits on the fellowship committee. I love the full circle of that. Tanya, like our other three guests, you first got involved with Juniper's research on women in philanthropy as one of her interview subjects. So that's one of the reasons that a lot of us are here, and we'll talk more about that as we go forward. We're going to hear more about your thoughts and ideas on today's topic in just a few minutes. But before we do that, I know from our show preparations that you are living a particularly busy life this week uh, and in general. In addition to being a busy mother of a four-month-old, congratulations, by the way, you and your husband are selling your home in Hamilton and are moving back to Toronto. So our listeners and me want to know why the move and what's that like during COVID-19? Sure. I mean, it's certainly a strange time all around and a busy one with a with the infant. But um, I grew up as a third culture kid, meaning both my parents were not from the place of which I was born. And then I was raised in another place than that. So my parents are of Jamaican descent on my mother's side and English Irish on my dad's side. I was born in Oakville, Ontario, grew up in the United Arab Emirates. And as an adult, um, made Toronto my home, where I met my husband, who is from northern Ontario. He's from Thunder Bay, and he made uh, Toronto his home. And we think a lot about diversity and inclusion, and we really um, think that those are important values in our life. And so for us, um, now that we have our son, we can't think of a better environment uh, to raise him in than the most diverse city in the entire world. So um T- timing is auspicious and so why not pile it on while uh, COVID's going on might as well make the move sooner than later he'll he'll benefit from the richness of diversity of voices food culture uh, that Toronto has to offer and Hamilton's a wonderful place but it's hard to compete with that level of diversity that Toronto has yeah you're gonna have a longer commute though <laughs> going from Toronto to Hamilton I, I will <laughs> I will for sure. I, I did it. I did it before and I can do it again. Perfect. Well, Toronto welcomes you back. That's a great, uh, great story. I was reading your bio and, and uh, man, you have lived everywhere. So that's great. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also joining us from Tanya's time zone, we have Derek Delouche. Derek is a long time, well, not 10 years, Ottawa resident, uh, formerly uh, grew up in Newfoundland, who uh, very recently moved from Humane Canada to join Carleton University as a senior development officer. Derek has been on something like a podcast in the past, but this is his first time with us. So welcome, Derek. Thanks, Vincent. It's a great opportunity to continue that we were working together with on IFP. Well, thank you. Derek and I, as he just mentioned, have known each other for a number of years. We have been chapter presidents for AFP, and we've served AFP nationally in a number of capacities. Um, Derek, up until recently, you were a very visible and strong fundraising voice for Humane Canada, the umbrella organization for Canada's humane societies. You might not know this, but animal welfare and advocacy is very close to my heart. In fact, in our firm, when we get those clients come up, I'm the one that usually says, yeah, I'll take that one on. Um, Derek, before we hear about how you intersected with Juniper's research, I know that within the last few weeks or maybe the last month or so, you started a new chapter in your life by joining Carleton University as one of its mm-hmm. senior fundraisers. I'm wondering, can you share with us and our listeners what that change has been like and what about the opportunity at Carleton excites you the most? So for me, it was an opportunity to move into an organization that's leading the um, charitable sector in Canada between research, between the master's in philanthropy program, but also the work the team is doing. 
And so there was this wonderful opportunity. They mopped back Carlton through the leader, Jennifer Conley, to be part of her special projects team. And I'm looking at the corporate partnerships that they have across the university and the opportunity to build university-wide sponsorship and corporate investment programs. Uh, it was a piece of work that I had been doing through my previous career. And it was an opportunity, to be honest, to become strictly a fundraiser for a period of time. Uh, so for my entire career, I've always been involved in the management of organizations with fundraising as my primary responsibility, some marketing and communications. I was really looking forward to an opportunity to concentrate on that core piece and joy, uh, to be a fundraiser full-time, that that was my goal and my piece of work that I'd be on. Well, that's great. I know in the pre-show, um, Derek, you shared with me that, um, you know, it's interesting that they, the work that you do outside of these big, the big box charities like the education and health is, is oftentimes a different approach to how, how we look at the community and the sector, and they're bringing that into Carlton with you, which is great. Um, I noticed, uh, you know, in, in our pre-show today, um, we did mention something about leg wrestling. We might come back to that, uh, but I'll leave that up to you. Um, I don't want to put myself on the spot, but you can throw me under the bus at any time around that. So thanks for that, Derek. <laughs> Finally, last but not least, we're joined by Nicole Jesnelnik. I probably butchered your name yesterday. I got it right, but I'll try and keep it going. Nicole lives in North Burnaby, and when she has to, she travels to her offices in downtown Vancouver. And I say that because when we talked, she's quite enjoying this sort of work-at-home thing, which is great. Nicole is Manager Donor Services for Vancouver Foundation. I believe this might be Nicole's first time on a podcast, and we're so glad it's with us. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole. Thank you, Vincent. Yes, I'm, uh, it's my first time, and I'm very happy and excited to be with everybody here today. Well, welcome. Like Tanya and Derek, Nicole was an interview participant for Juniper's research on women in philanthropy, and she'll correct the title of that for me later. I had not uh, met Nicole prior to preparing for the podcast, but we did spend a few minutes together earlier this week and got to know each other a bit more. Nicole grew up in Berlin and moved to Canada a few years ago. Nicole, as part of all of us getting to know you a little bit better, would you be willing to share with us a bit about what it was like growing up in Berlin? And if I'm not mistaken, some of that time was when Berlin was still a divided city. Yes, sure. Um, yeah, so I was 17 when the wall came down. Um, I grew up most of my um, young life in, um, in East Berlin. And... Um, Actually, the COVID experience kind of put me right back into my uh, nostalgic <laughs> memory lane there um, because I remember very vividly uh, lining up for basic things like food and fruit and um, and um, you just never knew if you, when it was your turn if you actually got some of it. So um, very much, um, you get very much a taste of the COVID experience here of what it was like <laughs> in East Germany. Um, I had a happy childhood growing up there. Um, I was taught all the values of community and caring for each other and, um, and giving back, etc. It was, of course, a very, like, um, simple lifestyle. And um, being, I was, because I was still very young, I didn't really feel the restrictions of the system. And um, all those I kind of learned and were, uh, became more aware of uh, once the wall came down. But... Um, uh, the main um, kind of biggest experience for me was to learn that I have a whole family. My grandma had um, 11 siblings in, in West Germany, which she couldn't tell us about. So it was all of a sudden we had this massive family that I had no idea existed. And uh, meeting them for the first time was really um, an interesting experience. So, um, yeah, I could go on and on and <laughs> I'm telling you about my experience uh, in East Germany, but um, I think that gives you a little bit of a snapshot. Thanks, Nicole. And we did not we did not prepare that that question uh, too much in advance. When I was thinking about it this morning, um, I went to myself. Well, I don't know how old Nicole is, so uh, you know she could have been a child, like a, a toddler. So I thought I'd just roll the dice and see if she was going to tell us. But you were 17 when the wall came down, so that you had some That's experience. Right. That's great. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, okay, let's get started. Thank you all for joining us on this, our 42nd podcast. Today's topic, Donor Engagement of Women in Canada, Insights on Fundraising Programs and Practices. Today's topic is also the title of a seminal study published by Juniper Glass. 
Juniper's work is a partnership between the AFP Foundation for Philanthropy Canada and I'm going to hopefully get this right, Phil Lab or Phi Lab, the Canadian Philanthropy Partnership Research Network. Her study was published in February of this year, which in COVID time is like 10 years ago. Um, as a podcaster and as a member of the foundation, I was asked by the chair of our research committee, John Gormley, if I would consider doing a special podcast to discuss and celebrate this research. It was a very easy decision. In addition to Juniper, joining us today are three leaders who participated in Juniper's research for the study. All of our guests are thought leaders and practitioners who regularly engage with women in philanthropy in Canada. Juniper will share with us more about her study in just a minute, but just to set the stage from Juniper's study, I paraphrase, women in Canada who in 2016 controlled just over a third of Canada's personal wealth assets will, by 2026, control almost half. And at the same time, today's fund development strategies focused on women are underused. Juniper, your findings and observations are a fantastic resource for fundraisers in Canada. A key phrase in the title of your paper is donor engagement of women. Let's start today's conversation with you. When it comes to engaging women as donors, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And what should we be doing to better engage women as donors to our causes? Juniper? Thanks, Vincent. Um, yes, yeah, so I'll say a little bit about the, um, about the research. I was curious um, to, to go a bit deeper. So women in philanthropy is, is a topic that probably all of us have attended some sort of panel on or web, you know, webinar over the, over the years. Um, it's become more and more popular, but I wanted to go more in depth than I found those conversations were going. And also to be a bit more practical and say, well, how are nonprofits in Canada doing the donor engagement of women, um, if at all? And so I did a few things. I searched for examples. So there's, I think, about 70 or more examples that I found of specific programs around women uh, at different nonprofits in Canada, looked at like what were their characteristics? How were they doing it? What domains were they working in? And so on, issue areas. Um, but the most important thing was that I talked to a whole bunch of fundraisers. I also talked to a few um, major donors who are women and, um, and got to scratch below the surface. So like what were the, what was working well? What wasn't, what were the key challenges? So I would say, um, and, and what I want is that this topic does take us deeper and deeper and deeper into questions of inclusion and equity. And how do we realize that in our organizations, in our day-to-day -day practices, um, in the way that we convey issues, in the way we treat people, and so on. So that's my not-at-all-secret agenda. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that... <laughs> Focusing on on gender and on on women was um, was a good addition to the field. So I would say it really depends on which organization in terms of the innovation and sophistication around how we engage women as donors. Um, but we've we we are informed by some work done by Kathleen Lohr in the United States, who is a lovely person and really. Um, was really supportive of this research because she found a lot of the same things in the States, um, which is that most of our assumptions about, about um, fundraising and, and who's a major donor and so on uh, rely on a certain conception of society, which is like, you know, the dominance of um, wealthier white men, right? Which is totally not the case um, in terms of where can we find support for our causes and where can we generate the kind of engaged um, donors that we all that we all want. So um, yeah, I, I might, I would love to hear from some of the others who are active fundraisers because I was an active fundraiser for 10 years. Now I focus more on grant makers, the grant making side of philanthropy, but um, but and then also these these more philosophical or research questions around fundraising. Um, but I'd love to hear like what folks 
heard in the report kind of resonated with their experience. Um, Cause I started to hear patterns for sure in what people were saying. Um, and, and I guess the very first one was when you're starting to conceive of your fundraising programs um, or to rethink them to, to really ground it, to really base it in what do your current donors, you know, what are they, what, how are their needs being met or, or not yet? What are they really excited about? What does your organization need? So one thing I learned um, from Derek and from others is that often organizations need, and this was my experience also in, a, in an advocacy organization, you need support for your systems change work. You need funding for your advocacy and your policy work, which often um, gets uh, less attention uh, from donors, or we don't, we don't approach that with donors as much. But what I heard from a lot of the women donors is that they get really excited about that big picture work and change. And so that made me go, bing, the light went off. And I was like, yes, like, women want to go deeper. They want to know what's the long, the end game, what's the long game? How can we really transform society? And they want to support that if you're able to, to tell them, you know, pathways forward and options. So I think that was the biggie for me, the big takeaway. That's great. And a great setting of the stage, Juniper. I'm going to invite uh, anyone who wants to, um, to weigh in on this and you can do that either by unmuting or putting up your hand um, but I love that idea that, um, oh, surprise, um, um, uh, presuming that women want to fund buildings and scholarships and endowments um, is probably um, uh, uh, not the right-headed way to go. Um, so, uh, Derek, I noticed that you unmuted, and maybe you wanted to weigh in with a, a thought or, or two based on that, and I'll bring the rest of you in as you, as you will. Derek. Yeah, so Juniper hit on exactly why um, our giving circle at Humane Canada was one of our most successful fundraising avenues over the last two years, because um, as we started to look, and, and for me, establishing giving circles at first United Way Ottawa and then Humane Canada was data-driven. Um, I didn't come at it from the point of view of the old-style uh, fundraising where we all knew when I was, you know, first started that the woman made the decisions in the family unit. So that, you know, the common thing that people say was the husband might write the check, but the wife was the one who made the decision. Well, that was an old view that didn't really take into account that women themselves were significant donors and that philanthropy was their aim. Um, so when we got into the data at both organizations, we saw that the female demographic were the ones who were investing at a significant level, but weren't the ones getting started, but they were the ones who were also engaging as volunteers. They were engaging on multiple fronts, especially at Humane Canada, the policy angle, the long-term change, the fact that they wanted to be engaged in a way that was more about making this concrete shift in what was happening in our country was part of that data we looked at. So we saw that women in leadership positions across the animal welfare movement, we saw women as our major donors, not from the amount they were donating at the time, because we hadn't asked them to be leadership donors. But then also we saw them as the people who were on our social media and who were behind every effort we had to reach the federal government to try to change the laws. From the report Juniper did, one of the things that really strikes me that was important is that they want to be well-informed. So we saw that every step of the way, that being well-informed meant they were part of our first-to-know family, that they were actually ingrained in the organization, that you established volunteer and advocacy opportunities, that you didn't take their donation for granted. We obviously had some donors who said, well, look, I just want to support. I know you're doing good work. But how we grew the Women's Giving Society was by actually spending the time to establish the relationship with our CEO, to establish the reporting, to make them well-informed for that big picture, as you mentioned, Juniper, that long game and the end game, which was our challenge. The reason we went in that direction is the average direct mail donor, our person who saw us on social media giving anywhere from $25 to $100 we're not understanding the long-term nature of many of the gains we had to make in animal welfare. Uh, so I think those are all parts that really speak to me about Juniper's report, the interviews she conducted, and even what she's saying today, that, that 
I can say absolutely resonate and I still see it with COVID-19 and the fact that the women in philanthropy are women for humane Canada and at United Way, the group I touched base with there as well, the women that became donors that invested so much into the organization, when they are well informed about how your organization is doing and what it's doing, they have retained for the most part, not only their leadership donation, but have made other gifts and brought in other gifts right now during this situation. Thanks for that, Derek. That's a great uh, takeaway from the report. I'm wondering if I can call on, uh, I see Tanya's unmuted. And Nicole, when I call on you, you might want to think about just sharing with us, um, for the listening audience, you can help all of us by um, telling them what a giving circle is. Derek, we could get you to do that too, but I'm just going to get Nicole to do that later. First to you, Tanya. Sure. You know, I, I have somewhat less experience than Nicole and Derek with giving circles, although at Heart and Stroke Foundation, we had something called um, the Heart Truth Campaign, the Red Dress Campaign, which many of you may remember from a number of years back. And we use that as a way of engaging some younger female philanthropists. And interestingly enough, they, they were okay with the moniker of young philanthropists, but not so much with the identification of female, because the young part sort of for them was a way of sort of um, at a very quick, quick way of saying, I might not have the capacity to make a leadership level gift, but maybe at a, you know, a community giving level. Whereas the female moniker didn't seem to resonate for them because they just saw themselves as um, equals to their male colleagues who were donating, giving up their time, treasure, and talents. Um, but I think from the perspective of my work at McMaster, I think one of the things that we do in terms of planned giving is really have to be so thoughtful. Um, from the perspective of um, heteronormative couples um, where there is, that are cisgender, um, we're thinking about the fact that we may have one alumni, might be the, the male spouse in a partnership, um, who has opted to leave a bequest to the university, but how are we engaging their female partner in that? Whether it's, um, you know, through the stewardship of that gift, the identification of what that, that gift might go towards to the recognition um, and naming opportunities around that particular gift. Because we do know that in general, men are first to die um, in heteronormative uh, couples. And so if we haven't done the due diligence of really engaging their spouse in that gift, well, when they're, when the male partner dies, you can bet, you can bet that they will probably make some different decisions about who their financial advisor might be and where that gift might ultimately go once the assets have been transferred to them and for them to make that decision. Um, but I did want to just bring one other point up that um, Juniper's research really got me thinking about is, does the term female philanthropist, is it, does it, does it resonate? Is it redundant? Because when I think of philanthropy, and we all know what philanthropy means in terms of the, where it comes from in Latin, the love of humanity, I think we often think of women and her as motherhood, as earth, as giving, as love of lovers and nurturers of humanity already. Um, and so is it a little bit redundant, the term female philanthropist? And do we even need to say female philanthropist? The idea of female giving circle seems to make sense and seems to work very well. But if we're having to qualify it's a female philanthropist, then the, the standard or the expectation is that a philanthropist is male and likely white, likely with class, a certain class standing, like, likely with certain wealth. Um, and so I, I, in my mind, I, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around whether or not that term is helpful or if it detracts from um, what we're trying to do, which is to encourage, facilitate, and be more inclusive of females who are philanthropists. Wow. So I'll pause that, there. That's a great statement. And one I think that the folks who are listening to this podcast need to think about. I'm sure we'll talk a little more about that. And your comment, Tanya, about thinking about uh, spouses in a relationship. Um, no matter what that relationship is, I worked for a long time for an engineering school, and uh, when the and, and mostly men, mostly men were in the alumni, and when they passed away, we would cancel their subscription to the alumni magazine. Well, the university would until I would I actually stopped that and said, 
I would prefer that the, cause we had calls from spouses. Most of them were women going, I want the magazine to continue, right? That's a, like a little relationship thread that happened for 40 years of my life was that sitting on the coffee table. I don't read it and I don't care to, but I want to get it. And it was a part of the relationship and, and making sure that that stayed true. And that was helpful for things like you said, planned gifts and stuff like that. So I just wanted to highlight that, uh, you know, that happens in lots of avenues Nicole, I'm wondering, um, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot by asking you to respond to Juniper's comment. And if you wouldn't mind, though, just define a giving circle for all of us, because we know on this call what that is, but not everybody listening might. A lot of board members listen to this. <laughs> so giving, uh, giving circles are generally, the idea about a giving circle is that people are coming together and they pool their money. Um, they kind of come up with their own um, um, rules and um, like as to how much or if there's a certain amount of uh, a minimum donation etc some people have no limitations but um, um, the idea is that people come together pool their money and give larger gifts to organizations that they uh, agree upon so and again like um, I, I specifically focused on women's giving circles, but there's other giving circles, of course, as well. Um, it kind of depends on what the group of people want to, what, what their interest is, what brings them together. Um, so when I, um, when I thought about giving circles, that was 2010, 2011, um, it was kind of like the, they just had started to take off if you want. And um, I thought, I just loved the idea of bringing people together and um, and looked at what what would work for Vancouver Foundation. And um, we have a, our granting um, uh, model is that we have an advisory committee, peer reviewed um, application processes and um, at those meetings, we often invite um, some of our donors, but of course, there's only a couple of seats in the room. So, but I noticed that whenever whenever we invited a donor to that meeting, um, they came out with a whole new um, knowledge and experience and um, a deeper understanding of um, how we grant to the community, and they just really enjoyed those um, experiences. So, it just seemed to be a good match with the idea of a giving circle and bringing grant making to donors because we could only have two donors in those meetings. So I thought, why not take the advisory uh, advisory committee uh, concept out and um, and form a giving circle um, where people kind of come together, um, pool their money, and then review some of the applications that we as Vancouver Foundation have already approved so that the organizations can get a bonus grant if you want. And um, the concept was kind of, we, we thought we tried it out, and um, it speaks to Juniper's point that um, that women want to go deeper and um, want to understand what they're granting to and have a better understanding of the issues and, and want to have maybe also a discussion. And that's exactly what we do with Giving Well. We um, meet for a couple hours once a year and the commitment is $1,000. So it's uh, not, a, not a massive gift, but it's um, it makes a difference. And um, there's usually 16 people around the table. And so there's um, about... Uh, three applications and people just go through the applications they discuss and um, come to um, um, a decision as to what uh, organizations they want to support every giving uh, every giving circle of course is very unique and this is very um, in, unique to Vancouver Foundation um, some giving circles have a commitment of $100 or some even $30 it really ranges and in Juniper's uh, report, I also saw that there's um, big commitments over like five years or <laughs> for $10,000 or more. Uh, so it really depends on what you want to achieve with your giving circle and um, what the capacity of the donors is. Still muted. Uh, thank you for that, Nicole. Um, uh, I was muted there. Sorry, folks. Um, I, I, a couple things came up in this conversation. I want to I want to turn it back to you, Juniper, for a second to respond to some of that. Um, and you may have your own notes in there, but it, it, we can circle back to a couple of things later on if we'd like. But the idea of um, female philanthropists being redundant as a term is a really interesting conversation. Um, and my other one is: Do giving circles work better 
Like, do the, the, it, are they are they a really great engagement vehicle for women in particular? Um, I'll say I asked that question because I've heard about them and I read in the report and I saw that and my wife is a member of the United Way Giving Circle and that's about her like she's very philanthropic but that's the most public thing she gets involved with is with the United Way Giving Circle and I, it seems to and it's the Women's Giving Circle so Juniper I'm, I don't want to keep talking I want to turn it to you what are your thoughts based on what you've heard so far? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's always a bit funny about the female philanthropist question. I think it's always a bit funny to, you know, categorize people, right? So whenever we do, and we're like, oh, women, which is like hugely diverse, just as diverse as the group of, you know, a group of, of male donors, what do women want from, from their organizations? And, um, but I do think that, we get insights when we when we do ask the question and do that slicing um, of our, of the data of our of our um, donor pool and our potential donors, right? So one of the things I learned from from Tanya is like about in terms of you know an intersectional approach is um, you know people aren't just their gender, right? They're also their background, their profession, their race, their ethnicity, where they were born in the, in the family grouping, like, it's so much, um, you know, whether they come from privilege or not, you know, less or more privilege, uh, class wise. So there's so much in people's stories. And, you know, the, the ideal is that we are able to hold space for people's uniqueness when we're doing fundraising work. And, and that that's going to get the best results. It takes a lot of time and effort. Um, and, but it also takes a lot of humility, nuance, listening, and not making assumptions. Um, and I think, so, and then in terms of giving circles, like the, one of the findings from the research is that it doesn't work if you just assume, okay, we have to check the woman donor box, so let's just create a giving circle at our organization. Folks who do that tend to run into difficulties. Um, you have to put in more thought. You have to take your time. You have to assess and engage um, some, some women donors who are already engaged in your organization to think it all through, to make sure that that's the best fit, because it might not be even to advance your organizational goals. That might not be the best fit. Um, and it can take a lot of human resources. But yes, um, there has been lots, the only kind of female donor engagement program type that's really been researched around the world is the giving circle model. Um, and we do know that it expanded like crazy over the last uh, decade or two um, and in all kinds of contexts. So uh, low income communities are getting together um, to create giving circles to pool their resources um, folks in developing, like there's, there's giving circles all over the place around the world, but the vast majority are, have, have women as members. And sometimes they're specifically focused on women. Sometimes they're not. It's just, that's the way it goes is that, um, women tend to be more attracted to that kind of method of philanthropy. So that's a few responses. I think one of the other things I found really interesting about the Vancouver Foundation work and Nicole's work is that even though it doesn't sound like a lot of, you know, funds for a community foundation or for an organization that is engaging donors on many different issues, um, this was a way to bring them closer to the foundation so that this is probably not the end of their engagement, the women's circle, that they, they, they now deepen their trust of the organization overall and and it may lead down the line to bigger gifts, to giving in different issue areas, and so on. And also just to trusting the foundation to do good with their money. So I found that really interesting. I, I believe in the community foundation movement and the United Way movements. I think they're a really amazing model and do so much for our communities. So that I found really uh, useful, um, that there are added benefits beyond, you know, once or twice a year getting together and uh, pooling their money for a few grantees, um, that there's added ripple effects and benefits. 
Thanks very much, Juniper. Um, and thanks for clarifying those from the perspective of evidence and background and research. I, um, I, I would like to circle back at some point around engagement. Um, and I noticed, Derek, that you're on off mute. I just want to quickly um, touch, uh, you might have wanted to talk, that's okay, I'll get back to you. But I, I want to put Tanya, um, in, in, give her an opportunity to share with us this word intersectional. I'm not, I, I've read it, I've seen it, I have an idea about it. I'd like you to maybe help us understand it a little better because Juniper brought up that fact that, that you raised the term, um, is, is female philanthropist redundant? And then Juniper talked about the, how you had sort of shared with her um, those other dimensions. So if, if you're able to share a little bit more about what intersectionality or intersectional means, that'd be awesome. You'll have to come off mute though. <laughs> so for me, intersectional, I think is a way of looking at a person in a very holistic way and thinking about not just one of the dimensions of their personality or, or their traits, those inherent qualities that they hold, whether it's their gender expression, whether it's their sexual orientation, whether it's their religious or spiritual views, their class, their um, uh, lots of other things, uh, race, their um, ability or um, uh, any disability, nationality, um, status in terms of are they a refugee, are they a migrant, are they a citizen, are they a permanent resident. And I think it's a way of really combining all of those things to really look at how a person um their social location and where they fit in society based on all of those factors. We're not just female philanthropists. We might be, um, we might be racialized. We might be queer. We might have some, some form of disability or, or um, neurodiversity. Um, so to me, I think that that's absolutely critical to the conversation and Juniper expressed that quite thoroughly, I think in her research um, in terms of, how intersectionality plays a role because great to have this concept of bringing women in and deepening that relationship with an organization, but what women are those and are we really engaging all women and what other barriers do we potentially um, put up by accident when we think about we need to deepen our relationship with female philanthropists or female um, identifying individuals who want to donate or give to our organization or already do well, when we define who that woman is, have we left anyone out and have we made it difficult for other female identifying women to be a part of that work as well? I hope that was clear. It, it was. I'm going to push, push one more step and, and it might be a push too far. Um, how would we make that practical? How, what would be a great way to, an, an example of, 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 of engagement um, that would that would be respectful and hold space for intersectionality. And we might not have the answers here today. We don't have to have those answers. And I don't want to put anyone on the spot. But if we sure. think about that, how, what would be a, a, just a, if someone's listening and going, well, how do I make that work in my organization? I think on a very basic level, I'm happy to answer that. And I think Nicole, Derek, and Juniper will have lots of thoughts on this as well. But on a sort of a very basic rote, rote um, example, how do we capture data around donors and their spouses or potential um, family members in our database? Do we have uh, ability to identify someone who is non-binary? Do we have the ability to identify a spouse that isn't of the opposite gender from that individual? Um, that's at a very basic level. How do we capture donor, donor data and how do we send out that information when we request donor information in a way that's truly inclusive? And then from an inclusion point of view, you know, when we have events or meetings, have we thought about accessibility? Now, I know we're all meeting from home and using Zoom, but are all of these tools really going to enable absolutely everyone to express themselves, participate and engage in the most deepest way? Um, no. So have we thought about interpretation? Have we thought about the kind of jargon that we use? Have we thought about um, the timing of the meetings? Is it a time when people might have faith commitments or family obligations? Um, again, those are really simple things, but on a fundamental level, have we, when we develop all these materials and we've got this great program and we've asked a couple of great women that have already been donating to our organization to review them and see, does it resonate? Does it make sense? Have we asked any racialized women, uh, any neurodiverse women, 
or any other non, uh, non-binary individuals, um, queer women, to look at those materials and say, does this resonate? Does this make sense for you? Because if you haven't involved them from the very outset, why would they get involved and give you their money? Great comment, Tanya. Derek, Nicole, do you want to add to that? That question I said, how do you make this come real? What's a practical way to really engage um, this intersectional idea in your office? Who wants to speak first? It's okay if nobody does. We can go on to other topics too. It's, I don't want to put anyone on the spot. Sounds like, Tanya, you nailed it. Um, what do we want to do to close out today's show? What are some topics that we really want to hit on? And Juniper, I want to give you that opportunity. You, 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 you worked with everyone, lots of folks, to come up with this study. Um, is there something you want us to really um, dig into to close out the show? Gosh, I think the key is that there's no you know, cookie cutter method that the call is really to do our work in a more sensitive way that will, that will develop, that will generate results that will generate um, better support for our causes and our organizations and really help move the needle on social and environmental challenges. Um, and so there, there, there are many different ways, and there's no recipe book. That's a finding from Kathleen Moore as well. And um, but asking the questions and then looking at it in a holistic way within the organization also really helps in the long run in terms of who is our fundraising team, who's our marketing team, who's our leadership that women tend to women donors tend to look and see am i reflected in this organization on the board at the leadership levels um they the the marketing materials is is a is a, a basic expression of that as well like do folks see themselves reflected um or are they you know once again overlooked right because we're talking about um each person has a different level of of power and privilege in every every situation. It's not that someone has or ha- doesn't have power and privilege. Um, there's it it's it shifts and changes. And so we want to sh- like I want to see fundraising help be part of that shift to be part of that systems change towards inclusion. And uh, and I think I think we're getting there, especially when we make the business case and say it's going to be better in the long run for our fundraising returns. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I do want to make sure that people listening do uh, hear that this is about engagement that leads to better fundraising and not just how do we get the check from women. Um, So (laughs) I think that's important to highlight. Uh, I'm going to ask a question of the group. And Nicole, did you take yourself off mute because you wanted to weigh in? Yeah, just for the engagement piece, I um, I feel like with the giving bell that we have at Vancouver Foundation, um, um, and this came in Juniper's um, report as well, um, is the question of measurement of success. Um, and I would like to make the point that to to that point, you just don't you don't just want to have the check from from your donor from your female donors. Um, I noticed that we started this two, uh, 2011 and there was no expectation of women to come back. They could just come to one meeting and never show up again, and some did. And uh, But I noticed that over the years, some of the women have been with us for now almost 10 years, and they come back and uh, over and over again. They attend every meeting, and um, some came in later and um, um, and come back and bring their friend or their, their one even brought that order. So it's um, I've, what I'm trying to say is that it's not a big fundraising tool. It's really a relationship builder. And I always um, sometimes feel the pressure of like proving that it's successful, but you can't, it's an engagement tool, right? Like it's a, you, you, te- um, you exchange knowledge and um, you give something and the woman in the circle, they also give something to the foundation in terms of their experiences and their knowledge that they had um, over their lifetime. So I think it's really a 
um, a tool of patience, I guess. Or um, it's not it's not a couple couple of years and then you have a success or not. I think it's really the long term engagement piece, which is very much um, speaks to the women want to go deeper and it's the long term relationship that they um, look for. So. Thank you, Nicole. You said it way better than I did. I'm going to ask one last question, and then I'm going to give you each a chance to say uh, something to our listening audience. Um, who does it best in Canada? Who's who? Who really rose out of the froth? Um, are you willing to name names? I mean, it's probably in your report. I didn't read it cover to cover, but uh, who's doing engagement with women uh, donors in this country the best? I know our listening audience would want to ask that question. Juniper. Oh gosh. Um... I know, well, what you don't, I you don't saw, like singling people out. We're very Canadian. I know. What I saw is that there were a few different common types. So there are some of the more big ticket kind of exclusive um, women donor groups. And a lot of those are around um, women's causes. So support for like uh, like feminist causes and also for international development organizations. So there's, there's a few of those, um, uh, like Plan Canada and um, who else has them? Anyway, Vancouver, um, sorry, Toronto Foundation has been doing um, a big initiative, their Trust Collective. And so those are for larger size donations um, over you know, a set period of time of a few years, which involve a lot of engagement. But I also noticed that really common as well was a lighter touch uh, kind of um, programming in which the contribution was maybe a little less, maybe it was more flexible in terms of the amount. Um, and then the opportunities to engage are more flexible too. So folks could participate in some things and not in others. Um, there's a sense of like, getting together with others that share something in common. So sometimes that was, I think in the best ones, it was, it was common passion around the issue, the social or environmental issue. Um, but sometimes it was just wanting to expand networks and feel a sense of community broadly. And so, I mean, both, both work. Um, there were other models as well, but those I think were the most common in terms of uh, women donor engagement. And then the, the final thing I would say is that some leading organizations, mostly uh, feminist organizations or the women's funds, are taking a very holistic approach. And so um, they will have, uh, what in, in the international development world, it's called gender mainstreaming. So it's where you incorporate a gender analysis into who you hire, how your database works, what information you track, um, how you analyze and speak about issues, and so on. So it's quite holistic, um, your governance, your decision-making flows. Um, and so there's much, you know, many fewer nonprofits that are doing a full kind of gender-based analysis and, and approach to their work. But I think that has a lot of potential and is is, is important. Um, so yeah, I can't name name too many names, but <laughs> it's all good. You gave us the you gave, that's what you I gave, observed. You gave us the archetypes, Juniper, which was great. Yeah, and you also taught me a new word: gender mainstreaming. I'm going to look into that afterwards. Clearly, I'm out of touch, um, and so I'm going to pay attention to that. So I want to thank all of you. Um, I'm never surprised, but I'm always a little uh, sad that uh, we can't, uh, you know, completely cover all the great things on a particular topic. But this is a big topic. Um, they are all big topics, and we'd love to have you all come back. And I want to thank all of you for coming, um, uh, Juniper and Tanya and Nicole and Derek. I really appreciate you all taking the time to, to be with us today. Before we go, I'd like to give our guests a chance to have their own last word, to say whatever they want, to promote or talk about things. The only thing I ask you to keep in mind is that, you know, this is going to be put out in August. So if you talk about something in July, they'll have to be time travelers to get there. So um, what we need to do is think about uh, if you're talking about that stuff. So I'm going to start with you first, Nicole. What do you want our listening audience to remember or hear or know about what you're doing? You can tell them how um, to reach you if you want. Sorry, I can tell them. You can tell them how to reach you if you want. It'll oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, so if you Google uh, Vancouver Foundation Giving Well, um, I'm happy to uh, chat with you about um, our experiences and um, 
and how we built the, the circle. And um, yeah, uh, this year, I'm not sure if we have a, a virtual giving <laughs> circle in the fall, but um, I'm sure that next year, hopefully everything is um, back to normal and then we can meet in person again. I actually, um, yeah, I'm not sure if this year something will happen, but um, in any case, give me a call or an email and I'm happy to check more. Thanks very much, Nicole. Derek, you're up next. What do you want our audience to listen to or hear or remember? Well, knowing that the audience is more just fundraising professionals, those involved in organizations, I want them to know that this is strategy, <clears throat> that everything we've been talking about is about your organization, that holistic look at what you're doing. And investing in your fundraising professionals is one of those ways that you make strategy happen. So Juniper's research was sponsored by the Association of Fundraising Professionals foundation in Canada and I'm a member of that organization have been a past president and I think it's very important that people make that investment to ensure that the fundraise staff and those who are within the organization have access to not only the data but the research and the guidance and the education that's available to help you decide how to build pieces like this into your strategy and make it a whole organization piece. At Carleton University, one of the things we have is we were Canada's first masters of philanthropy and non-for-profit leadership. If you Google carleton.ca and go into the masters in philanthropy and non-for-profit leadership, you'll see all of the courses and the discussions and the seminars and webinars that you can take that will actually help you understand how to build strategy. Fundraising is a very professionalized industry these days. Dr. Phillips at Carleton University is currently engaged in a survey that's focusing on the charitable sector as it's important to the Canadian economy, but on philanthropy in times of crisis, looking at the vulnerability and the resilience in Canada's charitable sector. Coming out of the COVID-19 crisis, we need to redevelop philanthropy is going to look different. Fundraising is going to look different from a professional point of view. So my plug today is invest in your fundraising team, invest in the Association of Fundraising Professionals in that master's work, by investing in your team, you will build strategy. You will ensure that your fundraising goes forward in a way that respects relationships and build your own financial resiliency. Thanks, Derek. I appreciate that. I also love the color of your walls. A lovely shade of yellow, it looks like. I'm loving it. Tanya, you're up next. Yes, I echo that. Very sunny, Derek. Yes. Um, I think for me, the conversation is, is wonderful. And I think Juniper's um, really advanced some very, very, very important work in the Canadian context. And we're thankful to have actual Canadian data because we're often grappling with, well, in the United States, we've got this. It's probably the same in Canada. It's great to actually have a body of work that looks at the Canadian experience because we are, uh, um, we have our differences from the U.S. And I think one of those big differences is our relationship with and to our Indigenous communities across this country, which I think looks very different um, than, than in the United States context. Um, so again, for me, it harkens back to the idea of, of intersectionality that, you know, don't let Juniper's work just be um, research um, that you sort of read, oh, really interesting, and let's put that away. Let's actually think about how we can put that into practice, because honestly, it's at our peril if we don't. Um, if we're not looking at women in general, we're missing more than 50% of our donor um, base. And if we're not looking at women from an intersectional point of view, we're really not going to have have very inclusive practices and very soon especially in our major centers where there is so much diversity we will be missing out on even more than 50% of our opportunity because we're not truly engaging people in a way that meets them where they're at. Um, I think for me um, I'm I think heart, heartened by the fact that through COVID we're seeing organizations that have done well are the ones that already were put prepared for their staff and their donors to bring their whole selves to the organization because we're expecting people to work under such constrained environments, taking care of loved ones, educating their children at the same time, uh, managing, um, you know, a challenging um, pandemic environment. And so the organization 
teams that have figured out how to let people bring them their whole selves to work, I think are the organizations that will succeed from the point of view of engaging um, in a truly inclusive and equitable way. Um, and so those who are struggling to figure out how to have people work remotely and to have trust and, and to, to bring their teams together, I think they need to think about how that will translate to how they're going to be able to implement this kind of work and truly engage people um, more broadly. Um, so just grateful to be a part of this. Nothing, nothing specific for me to plug. Um, I did some interesting writing with Marianne Kerr, and we wrote a couple of articles in Hillborn Charity E-News recently called Looking Back to Create a New Future, parts one, two, and three. Um, and the third is the final installment, and it's on governance. Um, so again, we that's something that's going to be available and would be very pleased for folks to, to read that and to engage with this, um, this topic of democratization of philanthropy um, with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at at R-U-M-B-L-E, which is my last name, Rumble, and then T-H for Tanya Hanna. Um, I'm really passionate about democratization of philanthropy, both internally, organizations being truly equitable, and then externally, how do we engage folks in, in inclusive and diverse and dynamic ways. So thank you, uh, Vincent, for inviting me. Well, thank you, Tanya. And um and uh, thank you for being uh, so light in your comments. I mean, uh, nothing deep there at all. Actually, it's so awesome to hear you talk about the writing. It's um, uh, the, the, the whole selves at, at work. I love that term, bringing your whole selves. I think we're all living with that. We're like, uh, I, Juniper, we watched your son walk through the screen, and that's okay. That's okay. Although you did do the SWAT. You know, <laughs> which was funny. Um, uh, Did you also see yeah. my stern look? I know. I was my stern mother look. Um, Tanya, just before I leave you and give Juniper the last word, um, uh, and I don't want to uh, offside you, but I noticed in your name that you've put a Tanya, and it looks like the name of your son. Is that right in your um, in your Zoom picture? Uh, that, the only reason why that that says that there, he's not here, or else I would hold them up and yeah. Simba him to you. Um, but we do an online uh, program for moms and babies, or caregivers and their and their yeah. babies. So. <laughs> that's just my zoom handle well no, what's so great about zoom and people don't realize is whatever your the, the name you changed it because you can change your name whatever you changed it to last time so maybe you were at a cocktail party with adults and you you had your risque name remember to change that when you go to your business meeting but i the reason i bring it up because that's yeah. the name, that's the name of your four month old and again i don't like to put that out into the world unless someone says it so i'm just going to say it's lovely to see it there and uh, thanks for bringing both of you all <laughs> Um, I'm going to give you the last word, Juniper. What do you want to say? And before you say it, I have to, I guess I, I want to just position this and say thank you for, for doing what you did that brought us all together today and actually brought the sector together. Um, I know you are a proud master's grad of Carleton. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that Derek brought up the Carleton program, which we're all very proud of, but also of graduates. So I just want to say thank you for bringing us together and then give you the, the platform to say what you need to say to the, to the group and what we, you want people to hear. Yeah, so awesome segue, Tanya. And, and everyone, when we're talking about how we care for our fundraisers, that is something I heard from a lot of the women donors I interviewed was they don't like staff turnover. They like to develop relationships that stick around. And then what I heard from some of the, the organizations um, was that they felt a big part of their success was how they had a sense of collaboration on their fundraising team. People wanted to stick around. They were able to bring their whole selves to work and so on. So I really do feel that is um, a feminist practice in leadership as well is to, um, is to create that space and those family-friendly practices, not that all women have families, but it's like the, those practices make a big difference and keep people on your team. And donors want to keep their relationships with, with their, their fundraising contacts at, at the organization. So um, definitely on the professional development. Yes, I am a proud, uh, I was part of the very first cohort of the um, Masters in Philanthropy and Nonprofit Leadership at Carleton. And, um, and it was a great way to take a step back and to think more deeply about, about my work as a fundraiser, um, someone trying to work for systemic change. 
and and deepened my interest in these questions about the flow of funds because money is money is energy it's a really important part of our systems change our social change work um and the only thing i would plug well if folks want to get in touch with me my website is lumiereconsulting.ca lumiere like the french word for light and then i'm also inspired by this research um going to co-facilitate with a group called the systems sanctuary for for folks who are uh, working on systems change um, or who want to learn more about it. And so we're doing a cohort just for fundraisers uh, who want to continue to explore these issues of how do we bring our values of equity and inclusion to work? Um, how as women or as non-binary fundraisers, um, do we be our full selves? How can we influence our organizations and the systems in which we work? to be more inclusive. So you can find out about that at the systems, uh, systemsanctuary.com. And that'll start in September and run for, I think, six months. So it should be great fun, a deep kind of uh, peer learning and professional development uh, practice. And thanks, so everyone, for your engagement. I think the last thing I wanted to plug was um, the awesome uh, AFP um, Toronto-sponsored, I believe, but maybe it was, it was broader than that. Um, the Black Women Fundraisers writing about their experiences and reflections called the Our Right to Heal Project. So you can Google Our Right to Heal and, um, and, and listen and read. So I think as white people, we always have to make extra effort to seek out um, other voices and to be humble and listen and, and take it in. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, Juniper. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, Nicole. And thanks, Tanya and your little one. Um, I, I love that you ended on that comment, Juniper. Uh, it's an important time for us to do that and be more sensitive. And we're also, as white people, looking for advice on how better to do that. So thank you for that. I know that was one pointer that way. I want to say that with that, our gift of another brain trust philanthropy powered by Vitreo has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you will join us later this month when we are planning on doing a rescheduled live Zoom podcast in partnership with AFP Edmonton. Stay tuned for an updated guest list. Until then, take care, stay safe, and stay sane. We look forward to talking with you soon. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Nicole Nardi, Katja Asomanning, and me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is produced in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Vitreo Group. That's at sign V-I-T-R-E-O Group. You can listen and subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or by visiting our website, betrayogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, and hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.